together in Genesis. So we have been in first, not first John, John 1. Sorry, I had the number in the wrong spot. We've been in John 1 during Advent. Now we're coming back to Genesis. We'll be fishing, finishing up our Genesis sermon series this week, next week, and the week after. So that'll take us kind of through the end of January. And then we'll start a new sermon series beginning in February that'll run up to about Memorial Day or so. So we are in Genesis 49 this morning. We'll do 50 next week. I'm going to read the first couple of verses. This is a pretty long chapter, and we will read all of it through the course of the sermon. We're going to do it in small parts as we kind of work our way through the text in order. So let's read the first couple of verses right now. This is the Word of God, Genesis 49, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen. O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to do what Jacob calls his sons to do. Help us to listen well. Give us ears that hear the message of this text. Help us to understand what it means. And then help us to desire and love to live it out and to help other people do that around us during the week as well. This is a work that you will do in us. We acknowledge, as we did during confession, you ask us to work out our salvation. Now give us the will and the strength to do so, and do so through the opening of your word and our time together in it this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Once upon a time. You remember that phrase? Once upon a time. When you hear that, what does it mean? What are you expecting to come next? There's a story coming, right? After once, it might be a long story, might be a short story, but there's a story coming. People have been hearing once upon a time in the English language since at least the 17th century. I looked it up because I was curious to see how far back it went, and I assume Wikipedia is never wrong. So 17th century at least, people have heard once upon a time and a story comes. So like you could hear once upon a time in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. And you would say, oh, there's a story coming, and it's going to be a long story. And, but you expect to hear something eventually. I saw a couple of you mouth it when I said once upon a time. You expect to hear something after a while, right? And it's happily ever after. Always follows once upon a time. So for the hobbit, it's he lived happily ever after to the very end of his days. That's how that story ends. Happily ever after tells you that you're at the, begin, you're at the end of once upon a time, and the two always go together, right? They're paired. Did you know that the Bible does the same thing? There's actually the same dynamic going on in the grand biblical epic that goes from Genesis to Revelation. Once upon a time in Hebrew sounds like Bereshit. Bereshit. We're going to learn two two little Hebrew phrases. Bereshit. We usually translate it in the beginning. And it's the first word of the Bible. And it does the same thing in biblical Hebrew that once upon a time does in English, except in biblical Hebrew, it's not the beginning of a fiction story, it's the beginning of a true story. So that way it's a little bit different. But biblical Hebrew, Bereshit, has a word that goes with it, that echoes it and concludes it. Did you know that? And so the Bible actually works in the same kind of way that we're used to hearing stories in English. In the beginning, the very first word of the Bible is already pointing you towards the end. It's saying this story's going somewhere. It has a conclusion. It's headed to a specific consummation. 
the very first word of the Bible already has you anticipating the end. And so here's the other Hebrew phrase that goes with Bereshit. It's Ba'akarit Hayamim. I'm waiting for you to write that down. No, I'm just kidding. It's, so Bereshit, the phrase that goes with it is Ba'akarit Hayamim. In the last days is how we would translate it. That in the beginning is already waiting for in the last days. And here's a bit of Bible trivia. Do you know where the first place in the Bible where that Ba'akarit Hayamim in the last days occurs? If you have a King James Bible open in front of you, you know the answer to that because we just read it. ESV translates it differently so you can't see it. King James says in chapter 49 of Genesis, verse 1, Jacob called his sons together and said, Gather yourselves together so I may tell you what will happen to you in the Ba'akarit Hayamim, in the last days. So Genesis actually is the first place that starts hinting at how the story is going to end with this phrase that echoes the very first word of the Bible. And why not? Why, shouldn't that, why should that surprise us? Because part of what Genesis does is teaches us to read the Bible. That's one of the points of the book. Right? If you're going to get the Bible, you have to get Genesis. That's why we've spent so much time in it. it one of the things it does is set up every major theme and storyline and biblical theological concept that's going to be developed later in the Bible. And another thing it does is it teaches you how to read the rest of the Bible. So it's teaching us we need to be watching for the end of the story and what happens. And it's already doing that here in Genesis 49. Gather yourselves together. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the Bakarit Hayamim in the last days. So where is the Bible headed? What is the end of the story? This is our first taste. In Genesis 49, you're going to see Jacob making some pronouncements or blessings. Right? The chapter is set up with the introduction we just read. There's a huge speech here. It starts with verses 1 and 2, and it ends in verse 28. Those are kind of the brackets, the beginning and the end of the speech. And then all the way through the speech, he's going to give a blessing on each of his 12 sons as he works his way through his entire family. You can see that in the bulletin outline I've shown you. But as he goes, his way, goes on his way through the 12 sons, if you've read it before you came this morning or last night, we read it last night, and it was very obvious to see there are two sons who get a whole lot more attention than everybody else. Right? Which two are they, do you suppose, having just read the whole Joseph narrative? Who would get the most attention? Obviously, Joseph. He, this has been his story. But what's been the whole point of Joseph's story? What did Genesis 38 teach us at the beginning? Whose line do we really care about? Judah. And now this morning, we get to find out why it is that we care so much that Judah's line continues so that Joseph's entire life and ministry has basically been preserving Judah. So those are the two sons who get the most attention. That's where the spotlight in the text is. That's where we're going to, we could, we could tease out, there's all kinds of stuff going on in this poetry. We're going to spend our time on the two sons that the text spotlights the most, on Judah and on Joseph. And if you put both of those sons together and what's going on and the blessing and prophecy of the last days of this text, you're going to find 
We're going to learn why we have salvation and can worship and how we're to work out our salvation in discipleship and mission. If you take them both and put them both together, you get the whole picture between the two of them. You're going to see God's covenant faithfulness consummated in Jesus Christ, fulfilling both the type that Joseph is. He points to, right? He's like John the Baptist. He's pointing to someone else. And Judah through whom the promise and the covenant will be fulfilled. Between the two of them, if you put them together, you get the whole picture. So we're going to start, we're going to go in the order of the text. We're going to start with Judah. So we're going to read the first half of the speech. This is verses 3 through 17. I'm going to see if I can do it in one breath. No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. Reuben, Jacob is speaking. You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Verse 9. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth is whiter than snow. Now we're at verse 13. Zebulon shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good, and the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so his rider falls backward. So before we get to Judah, did you notice there are seven sons in this particular, this first half of the speech? There are three at the beginning and three at the end and Judah right in the middle. So let's, I'm going to very briefly take the three at the beginning and the three at the end and note a couple of interesting things going on, especially as they relate to Judah. Sometimes we call the whole speech a blessing. Verse 28 calls this whole thing a blessing. I don't know if you were listening closely. It doesn't sound a lot like a blessing all the time to me. Some of these guys are not getting what I would call a blessing, especially the first three. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi end up rewarded for their sin and their bad character and poor conduct earlier in the Genesis story. And these things that Jacob says actually end up happening if you keep reading into the Bible. Commentator Kent Hughes notes the same thing. Because Reuben sinned against his father's marriage bed in Genesis 35, Hughes notes when Reuben's descendants settle in the Transjordan, later on, right, this is later on after they come up out of Egypt, 
they disappear from history. No prophet, no judge, no king comes from the tribe of Reuben. They're gone. When Simeon and Levi initiated the bloodbath in Shechem in Genesis 38, 34, sorry, that's what they're talking about here. They, they slaughtered an entire city. Hughes says, both of these tribes were divided and scattered. Neither of them were given a portion in the land. The tribe of Simeon virtually disappears after the time of conquest. And the tribe of Levi was given the responsibility of the priesthood. So its people were not allowed to have their own territory. These things happened. Their character and their conduct and their future in the people of God are related to each other. And I think we're supposed to notice that. Their character and their conduct and their future as part of the people of God were related to each other. And all of them disappeared. That's the first three sons who are becoming less and less like Jacob's fourth son, Judah. Now let's look at the last three sons that follow him. Zebulon, Issachar, and Dan kind of do a little bit better than Simeon, Reuben and Levi, though not a lot better. They kind of have a mixed future. But I wanted to focus on Dan because that one is odd. Did you notice it has a couple of lines? Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Now there's a word play going on in that verse because the word Dan is the noun of the verb judge. Dan is a name that means judge. So the the judge will judge. Dan will judge. See, There's a word play going on there. But the second line is strange. He will be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so his rider falls backwards. And because of the judge word play going on in that first word, some people think this is a reference to Samson, who was the last judge in the book of Judges and who does come from the tribe of Dan. And that might work as long as we're not messing around with the flannel graph in Sunday school and we understand that Samson is not a hero. He is a terrible person, and he was the worst judge. That's why he's last in the book. He was the worst judge in the book of Judges, right? The whole book of Judges is this downward spiral. I think the best sound effect for the book is the sound of a flushing toilet. And as as we keep going downward and downward and downward, he's the guy at the bottom of the toilet as it flushes. He was not a hero. He did not deliver Israel from anything and spent his life in dissipation doing what he wanted to. So this might work for Samson if he's in reference here. Especially because the second line is not a compliment in Genesis, is it? If we're keeping in mind the the context of Genesis, he's a serpent who strikes at the heels of someone else. What should that remind us of? Who does heel striking at the beginning of the book in Genesis 3, right? The curse on the serpent. The promise of the coming seed. The first time the seed comes up, you will strike his heels, he will crush his head. This is not a compliment. This is a reference to the devil. And Dan, one of the tribes, is being described in the same kind of language as the devil, the snake, the tempter, as he attacks the coming seed, son, and savior. That actually happens later in the book of Judges. Go read the end of Judges and watch what the tribe of Dan does at the end of the book of Judges. It is horrific. And that might actually lead us to the conclusion that the point of this oracle here at this this spot is very akin to Matthew 13, 
where Jesus gives an oracle of the wheat and the tares, that even inside the covenant family, even inside the people of God, even inside the church, there are people who are not, not everybody's a believer. Even if, we can, even if we're confessing with our mouths, not everybody who says they're a Christian are. And even inside the church and inside the people of God, there are some people who belong to the snake, who belong to the tempter, who are owned by the devil, and they do his work trying to derail the coming seed, son, savior. And that will go on until the very last day. That will be something that happens in the last days and will go on until the very last day when the weed and the tares are finally separated. Matthew 13 is the parable about that. In our next sermon series, we're going into the book of 1 John. 1 John is a letter that was written precisely to address that problem. How do you tell the difference between those who are actually believing and following Jesus and those who are only pretending to? 1 John was written to answer that question for the church. Just showing up at church does not make you a Christian. Just being related to a believer does not get you into heaven. The only way you are made right with God is the death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. His blood spilled, his body broken, and you casting yourself completely in faith on that sacrifice to make you right with God, to pay the penalty of your sin. The only way you are saved is the lion of the tribe of Judah tearing death apart and coming back from the grave and resurrection life. And if you have faith in him, you will join him in that resurrection. And that is the only way you are saved. Sometimes there are people in the church who aren't actually yet believers. So one thing we do in making disciples is we keep speaking the gospel over and over and over, whether we are at church or at home or at work or anywhere else, so that some will be able to hear and in the last days stand with us singing songs like we've been singing this morning and worshiping the Lamb who is the Lion. So now let's get to Judah. Judah's in verses 9 through 12. And this is where we finally learn, right? We've been wondering since Genesis 38. That is such a crazy, weird chapter stuck in the middle of the Joseph story that appears to tell us the whole point of the Joseph story is Genesis 38. Judah's line must continue. That is of paramount importance. Now, finally, at the end of the book, it tells us, well, here's why. Because the coming seed, the coming son, the coming savior is coming from Judah. There's a king coming, and it's from his line. And it relates directly, I think this passage relates directly to Genesis 1 through 3. When Adam and Eve listened to the snake instead of the word of God, they sinned. And that sin brought curse and death into the world. And now all of us are born into this state. But even as God's curses come down in Genesis 3, right, that snake heel biting seen there's a promise there's a seed a son who's going to come and smash the snake and reverse the curse and undo what you have done and redeem the people and renew the creation and we've been following that seed line and that savior and that son and watching for him the whole book and we've been watching the entire time and now we're getting to a nexus point in the text saying here's who he is here's what you watch next we've been watching this story unfold Cain From the very beginning, the very first two sons, Cain murders Abel to try to keep the seed from coming. But God provides Seth 
and the line keeps going. Men fill the earth, not with the glory of God as they multiply, but with violence. And so God brings a flood down and destroys everything. His filth-filled, sin-filled creation, except Noah. The line continues, and Shem is preserved. And now the line's going through Shem. And then a man from the line of Shem named Abraham is called out of the nations to be a different sort of man. And he's set apart, and God makes a covenant of grace with him and says, through you all nations will be blessed. And then he can't have kids. So now we're stuck, right? It's like the scroll in Revelation 5. Whoops. Did you think of that one? That's not a problem for the God who made the heavens and the earth. And he has a son, and his name is Isaac. And Isaac has a son, and his name is Jacob. And he's the guy who's talking right here. And he has a son whose name is Joseph, who goes down, 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 down in slavery, put under the earth, but comes back up in a resurrection almost like to be the king of Egypt. And he uses all of his power and his glory and his gifts to save Judah's line and the rest of the family so now this text can happen. Do you see the theme that's weaving its way through the book? The The seed of the serpent is always trying to stop this by murder or by trickery or by whatever means they can, but it never works. God has made a promise. He is going to keep it. His seed, his son, his savior will be coming. And now Jacob is telling us, one more link in the chain. In the last days, in the Ba'akarit Hayamim, you're going to see the lion of the tribe of Judah who is a coming king. That's going to happen. The whole book of Genesis has been pounding this over and over and over. God always keeps his promises. And we have an interesting picture, I think, of what his rule is going to look like. We get this little glimpse of what he's like so that when he shows up, we recognize him. The prophecies of the coming Messiah give us all kinds of, here's what he'll look like, here's what he'll look like. This is one of the first ones, and here's what he'll look like. Look at verse 11. And I think this is an odd, I think there's all kinds of weird images all the way through the speech. And this is another one. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth is whiter than milk. So in general, if you take those images and poems and kind of trace them through the Bible and pull on them, what do they mean? They're all images of abundance and prosperity and blessing coming. But tease out some of the particulars. Derek Kidner does this in his commentary especially the phrase, he's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So my, la- my washing machine broke this week. It was right in the middle of washing a really heavy comforter that weighs about 5 million pounds when it has water in it. And so it decided to break in the middle of the cycle so that I had an entire washing machine full of water or of a liquid and this really heavy comforter. So and, and, you know, you fiddle with the, okay, if I can just get it to drain. Maybe if I push the button again. Maybe, maybe if I push the button this time. Maybe if I, you know, and you know the definition of insanity, right? Is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Yeah, so that didn't work. So I got to get out the wet vac and suck all of that liquid out of the washing machine, dump it all out in the street, and then find a way to, weigh the, to bring out the 5,000-pound comforter that was there. 
And then I got to download the technical service manual, put it in diagnostics mode, and fiddle with it till I figured out what was wrong and then order the part and fix it. It was really fun. I'm telling you all of that to this point. What liquid was inside the washing machine washing my clothes? Was it wine? What do we wash in? Water. Water. So it looks like when the lion of the tribe of Judah comes, water is going to turn into wine. And that will be one way you recognize who he is. We just finished John chapter 1 at Advent, didn't we? Where there are witnesses saying, he's the Christ, he's the Lamb, him, come to him, we've met him, come and see who he is. It's not just witnesses and people who do that. Jesus Christ testifies to who he is himself. In the first half of the book of John, there's seven signs or seven miracles that set up the he is the Christ. And you can tell by what he's doing and what he's saying. What's the first sign? John chapter 2, the very next passage after where we ended for Advent. What does Jesus come and do at the wedding of Cana? He turns water into wine. And Genesis 49 says, there he is. That's him. The guy Jacob was talking about has just shown up. People witness to the Christ. Jesus witnesses to his own identity. And the word of God clearly identifies Jesus Christ as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The only true way, the only truth, and the only life. The only way you can come and be right with God is through faith in him. And Genesis 49 is one of the places that says, there he is, that guy. He's the one. And so Jacob exclaims, right in verse 18, which is dead center in the middle of this poem, what the, this line goes with nothing else in the poetry. And when you see a poem doing that, it's important. What does he say in verse 18? Oh, I will wait for the salvation, for your salvation, oh Lord. He cries out after he finishes talking about the coming king. It's like, oh man, if I could only see this. I can't wait. I can't wait to see the coming seed, the lion, the king from Judah. So that's the first son that gets the spotlight. Now we're going to look at the second son, a little briefer, who gets the spotlight. His name is Joseph. He's in the second half of the speech. I'm going to read 19 through 29. We're going to read all of the rest of the sons and see how big a text Joseph gets. So starting in verse 19... Raiders shall raid Gab, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he will yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful farms. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him. They harassed him severely, but his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, the blessings of the breasts and the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey 
and in the evening dividing the spoil. So we're not going to talk much about Gad and Asher and Naphtali and Benjamin, other than just to note that there are other word plays going on with their names in the text that go with them. We're going to spend our focus on Joseph for the rest of our time. I want you to look at his blessing in verses 22 through 26, and there, notice there are three things, three things emphasized. What were they? What are the pictures in the text? What three things are they? First, he's being attacked, and he's suffering. But God sustains him and rescues him. He's being attacked and suffering, but sustained by God. That's been a main theme of the book, of the, of the Toledot of Jacob, of the story of Joseph. The whole reason that anything has turned out for good, the whole reason that this story has ended the way that it has, with everyone preserved and redeemed and saved, is because God has been faithful, and God has protected, and God has delivered and blessed Joseph. Joseph has attacked, been attacked, he has suffered, and God has protected him and saved him and blessed him and brought him through so that he can preserve Judah's line. That's the first thing emphasized. The second thing that gets repeated is just who God is and what he's like. These descriptions of God's nature and his character, we're not going to have time to tease them all out, but every one of them is carrying some cargo. God's sovereign behind-the-scenes work protecting Joseph focuses us on his shepherding care and his covenant fidelity. It's both. He is a God who passionately loves his people. And he is a God who always keeps his word. And both are true. Once again, the text is emphasizing the whole reason any of this is turning out the way that it has. From this tremendous mess of a covenant family is ending blessing for the nations. That's because God is a God who keeps his covenant promises always. That's the second thing emphasized. The third thing we see in Joseph's blessing is the word blessing. You see how it repeats? It happens to be the only place blessing actually shows up in the entire speech. None of the rest of the sons get this word. He gets it five times. And they come in pairs. The first two pairs are a merism. Blessings above and below. It's a, and, a, and that means everywhere, of all kinds. Right? Every place his blessing is. In every place, heaven above and earth below. And the last two lines show us the magnitude. So the first show us the the extent. It's everywhere. The last two lines show us the magnitude of the blessing. Greater than any genealogy. Better than any family history. And as large as creation itself are the blessings that are coming upon Joseph. Extent. Magnitude. That's the first two and last two lines. And so right in the middle. What's in the middle line? All by itself. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. That's multiplication. That's be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule it and subdue it. It's echoing the great creation commandment. That's God saying to Abraham, through you all nations will be blessed because I'm going to make you into a great nation and a seed will come from you. Because of Joseph's faithfulness, In God's sovereignty, these things are moving forward to a sure and certain destination. Ba'akarit hayamim, in the last days. The lion of the tribe of Judah, first guy, is going to finish the work that Joseph started, second guy, so that all of the earth is full of the glory of God, when you put the two of them together. 
You see how they kind of coordinate their ministries? Joseph, the extent and magnitude of a blessing that is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And how does that happen? Because he has preserved the line of Judah. And there's the king, the seed, the son, the savior, who will crush the serpent and reverse the curse and renew creation. And Jacob is absolutely certain that this is going to happen. So much so, look at his last words after his blessing speech in the last couple of verses, 29. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with a blessing suitable to him. <laughs> then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite and the cave that's in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. This is all from like Genesis 24. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, that were bought from the Hittites. I think his final words show us three things at the end of this text. First, his burial directions give us instruction about how to end life well. Look at, how, look at how he's ending life. He's still discipling his family, isn't he? He's still teaching them that he's holding firm onto his faith. He's still showing them what the sure and certain Ba'akarit Hayamim is, what's going to come in the last days, because his God always keeps his promises. His burial instructions are intended to be a visible demonstration of his faith and aim to teach his family something about who God is, even as he's dead. And what is he teaching them? Don't leave my body here in Egypt, because the end for God's people will not be exile in the land of death and slavery. That's not where God will leave us. What did he say to Abraham? What did he promise me? You'll be here for a while, but I'm coming and I'm going to bring you home. I will hear your cries of suffering. I am the God who sees my people when they're in bondage and in slavery and in death. I am the God who remembers that I've made covenant promises. I am the God who knows the suffering of my people because I come down and I take on flesh and I live among them in the Son of God. And I am the God who delivers my people from death and slavery to life and blessing with me. And Jacob is saying, don't leave me in Egypt. You take me home because that's where I want to rise from the dead to see my Savior coming. This will happen. It will happen. And even in his burial, he says, this is true. You can bet on it. So when I come back from the dead, don't leave me in Egypt. I want to be with Abraham and Isaac because I'm going to chat with them when we meet the Lord in the air when he comes back. Even as he dies, he's still discipling his family. And his words also review the entire story of Genesis as he works his way through this field and how it came to be about. And it wraps up the story of Genesis. In the beginning has a sure and certain conclusion. Happily ever after. Ba'akrit hayamim. In the last days. And Jacob tells us 
this is what's going to happen. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's going to come and he's going to bring God's people home. You can bet on it. You can bet your life on it. You can be sure that it's going to happen. That's what's coming in the last days. And the very next step is one man, Abraham, who can't have kids, has a son who has a son who has 12 sons who end up as 70 people who by the time we're done in Egypt are a people of hundreds of thousands who will be saved by the blood of the lamb and the death of the firstborn son to start their way home in the Exodus, which itself is just a prequel right, of the later greater work of that lamb of God whose name is Jesus. That's what's going to happen in the last days in which you now live. Because the last days started when that son came, right? John 2, he's here. This is him, and the last days have begun. So this is your commission from this text. Reread Genesis 49 this week and do it slowly. And look and see your God and your Savior. Just know them better. Read Genesis 49 slowly. Know your God and Savior better as you do. And then find a way to introduce somebody else to this Savior whom you love. That's your commission. Just enjoy your God and introduce someone else to the Savior whom you love. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you graciously do not leave us in the dark about what's happening, that your character and your conduct line up perfectly, that you are a God who always keeps his promises in Christ. And so we know that if we are in Christ, this will be our song. To him who sits on the throne, And to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We want to be some of those people who get to sing that song. I pray that you would do a work in us so that we might have the faith that trusts in your Son, that we get to sing this song. And I pray that you would use us so that other people would be with us singing the song because we got to tell them about the son who's the lion and the lamb. In Christ's name, amen. Coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break, as broken hearts declare his praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is a lion, 